Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. My view on refinancings have changed in the sense that like, as you get older, the refinancing is not as sexy. Yes, you get to take money off the table tax-free, so to speak. But I now have, in, this, in the last two years, if I got to refinance, I have to redeploy this money. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome to another episode of Ritter on Real Estate, where we teach you how to passively invest like a pro. I'm your host, Kent Ritter, and today my guest is Arya Scheinbein. He is the founder of Results Advisory, and he's a wealth architect for business owners and, and high net worth individuals. And so I'm excited to dig into to what a wealth architect does and, and help us better understand that and kind of uh, the value that you're providing for, for the group. But before we, we get there, Arya, let's just start at the top and um, tell us a little bit more about who you are and, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Thanks for having me, Kent. Um, so Absolutely. I think um, I, I think we'll we'll start at the beginning. And a, I guess when I was a kid, right? Like I I played a lot of sports, and I also simultaneously I collected a lot of sports cards. And back then, I'm gonna date and age myself a little bit. The internet kind of didn't exist, and so pricing on sports cards and collectibles and things like that we use something called Beckett price guide and it would come out like once a month. So there was no instantaneous pricing on things. So if you went to a store or card show or whatever it was, there was no, it was kind of like stale for 30 days. The price guide would come out, that would be the new market. And then until the next guide came out, if players were playing and performing better, there was no way to like adjust for that in the pricing mechanism. Mm -hmm. And so I would actually start to accumulate as, as someone who would follow the game, I would accumulate like rookies or players who were really having a great season, typically on the rookie side. And the reason for that was it was less known, right? Like if you were going after what, or there was, you know, a, a gold glove all-star who's known very well, like a Cal Ripken, or even like sure. later on, like a Derek Jeter, it was less, you know, Oh, surprise. He's doing well. Right. As opposed to a rookie comes up, not really sure what to expect out of him. And he, and he gets hot right away. And so the guide is not necessarily going to reflect that for, for some time. 
So anyway, I would buy and then I'd flip as, uh, as, a, as the next guide would come out or two guides later would come out and the pricing was really reflective of that. So it was kind mm-hmm. of like a little bit of an arbitrage of, of the timing of it. But at the time, I didn't really think much about that in the sense that I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to school. You know, I was raised with like, hey, go to, go to school, go to you know, high school and college, you go to college, get a good job, all this stuff. So I went to college, majored in finance, and um, I went down the path of like, okay, actually in college, I spoke to a ton of people. I did what I call informational interviews. And I spoke to people to understand like what investment banking was, what equity research was, what's capital markets, how does this whole Wall Street thing kind of really work? And I just got connected to another person, another person, another person. And that's really what I spent like two years in college, just networking besides going to class and stuff like that was just really understanding the actual job market so that when I would interview, I wasn't like, hey, I I did well in school, hire me. I actually understood what they were trying to get out of me. Um, And so, so sure enough, like, Graduated, had a number of large Wall Street firms give me investment banking offers. So I went to uh, JP Morgan and I joined the investment bank class that year. And for so many years, I had been focused, solely, solely focused on like that one thing. And that was getting the job. And when I got there, though, I was like, huh, I kind of knew what this job was about because I had spent two years talking to people about it. But I'm not so sure that like this is what I totally love. I'm not sure. I got to figure this out. Sure. But almost immediately, I was like, okay, what's the next thing? I was, I was, I had my brain had been trained, like, get the goal, move past, keep going, keep going. And so immediately, I was like, okay, what do I do next? And I ended up getting married at, uh, at a pretty young age. And um, when, when we were married and we were expecting our first kid, my wife would like be out, out cold, like she'd be asleep by like eight, nine o'clock at night. And so here I am, I'd come home from a long day. And um, she'd be ready for bed. And like, so now I'm not going to go out now. Like, what, what am I going to do? <laughs> and, and so I actually started hopping online at night. And I, oddly enough, I got back into sports cards. And it wasn't as a, a collecting, collecting hobbyist, but it was, I recognized, you know, to, to make the story concise, I basically saw that there was a, a gap in the, the, if you went to a retail store, what the price was relative to eBay and Yahoo auctions. And you could buy on one and flip on the other or sell it locally. And, and there was like a huge pricing arbitrage. And so the, the retail store wanted $120 for this box of cards. And on eBay, you could buy for like $60 to $70. And Yahoo Auctions, people were paying like $90 to $100. And so I started buying on one and then selling it to, to the other market or selling it locally. And I'm like, all right, this doesn't scale very well. So I did a little research and found how, how to buy the, these boxes by the case. So I was buying you know, 12 to 20 boxes at a time. I was like, mm-hmm. okay, this is a little bit more efficient, but I was sending out the boxes one at a time. So I was like, okay, how, how can I you know, not get so in the, the weeds? Um, but there wasn't at the time a really great way to do it. So I just kept doing it. And, and um, I was basically flipping baseball cards, literally um, for profits at night while doing my job. Um, I moved into a number of other e-commerce products, um, out, out of sports cards into things that honestly, at the, at the time I knew nothing about, but the, the data online that I was researching showed me that people are buying. So it didn't matter to me. I didn't, I didn't really care. I had no affinity to hunting and, um, uh, fishing gear, but that was selling super well. So I just went for it. Um, and ultimately in that, like I learned, like I, I tell people like I have a degree in finance but I have probably a, a learned uh, PhD in like marketing. 
because I learned, okay, if I'm going to build this business, I need email addresses of my customers. I need to understand how to market to them. Um, and so I kind of like was progressing my career. So like after investment banking, I went into a, a private equity shop and we did a lot of venture capital and, and early stage private equity, kind of smaller deals. Um, after a handful of years and moved back to um, an investment bank and did what we call equity research, where I would research the companies, write the reports, tell people what I thought about the stock um, as a junior analyst there. Um, so there's like a senior analyst that kind of like, you know, big name on, on the report. And then right below him, he's got his associate who's, who's the, the junior analyst, right? And so I did that for a number of names and ultimately kind of then ended up inside private equity firms and hedge funds like for, for a, you know, over a decade and spent a long time, part of my career doing that. And still to this day, I work at a consultant, a global consulting firm where private equity firms and hedge funds really hire me to value businesses. Uh, value their investments in businesses, whether it's they own the equity, they own part of the equity, whether they own the debt side, just because like just because you make a loan to somebody doesn't mean that the loan is worth what we would call par, right? Like if I lend you a million dollars, doesn't mean that if I wanted to sell that million dollar loan, I would get a million dollars, depending on interest rates, depending on performance of your company. Maybe I get more, maybe I get less, just like a bond trades. So anyway, sure. um, during during this whole career path, like as I started kind of getting into more e-commerce, um, the, you know, Amazon kind of got into this thing called FBA, Fulfillment by Amazon, which took away all the fulfillment headaches and all the logistic help, headaches for me. So I was able to kind of focus on like buying product or creating product and selling it on their platform and continue to this day, still have a number of interests and involvements in those businesses. But I started meeting a lot of small business owners and entrepreneurs, both online, offline, who were really good at, at generating wealth and making money, but they didn't necessarily know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. They were like, hey, this person told me I should buy a single family home and rent it out. Or this person told me I should buy a whole life policy and own it and, and I don't know, leverage it as be my own bank or this, that, the other thing. But they had like pieces of information, but they were missing like a much bigger pie, a much bigger picture. They, they didn't understand how a lot of these things connected because most of the time, like you're being marketed to buy somebody, right? Like whether right. I want to teach you how to trade options, whether I want you to buy life insurance, whether I want you to go into mutual funds, typically the incentives are to get you into that product or that vehicle. And so what I found was there was like a gap both in the education and then in the execution in the sense that some people want to be educated. Some people, they don't want to be educated. They just want to like, here, just do this for me or tell me what to do or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where results advisory kind of came out of and, and the name wealth architect, because um, there's always like this stigma around like the financial services is like this weird industry because there's always an incentive for somebody. But the problem is, is like, you don't necessarily know what the incentive is, right? Like you go to the car dealership, you know what the incentive is. That guy wants to sell you the car, right? Like he's incentivized to put you in a vehicle. The guy comes to your house and says, hey, you want to buy some solar panels? You know what the incentive is. He wants you to buy the solar panels. You come to someone who's like, let me plan your future. Hmm. Where is the incentive hiding, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not clear. Like, yes, deep down, these people want to help you. I'm not knocking the industry, but I am saying like, 
okay, understand where the fees are and how they're actually going to make money. And that's the hardest part. So I didn't want people to be like, oh, you're an advisor. Oh, you're trying to sell me something, right? Like I wanted it to be truly product agnostic, meaning like, I don't care if you want to get rich from real estate. Amazing. I will explain and teach you whatever I know and show you things that I do. Mm -hmm. If you want to understand crypto, I will show you what I do and give you the basics. If you want stocks, same thing. You want to trade options, same thing. I'm certain things I'm probably more versed with, but my career, I've touched on all of these things. Sure. And so working with people, like the idea is like, hey, let me educate you. But also if you need handholding or done for you, so to speak, I can, you know, do that within reason. Yeah. So we, we covered a lot there. You've got, you've got quite the background. Let me, let me roll this up a, a little bit. So you've, here's, here's what I heard. You know, you come from a, a strong institutional background, right? iBanking, private equity, a little, little bit into venture capital, some other places, but, you know, really a finance focus and kind of a high level institutional focus. You've, you've spent time in equity research. You've spent time in valuation, right? So you're value, valuing deals, you're doing research. Um, you've got definitely an entrepreneurial uh, tilt as well, right? Starting your own businesses. And through that, you've, through this lens or these different lenses, you, you've kind of identified uh, this network of small business owners who, who are good at creating wealth uh, in their day-to-day business, right? But but not necessarily as, as apt into what to do with it once it's there, how to keep it working for them, right? Put it to work passively, I guess you could say. Um, and so so you saw the opportunity to create this business re- results advisory, and now you're kind of offering your research and finance and valuation and all these services kind of to these folks to help them understand um their individual investments and their individual investment options. Is that, as I kind of roll that up? You roll that up beautifully. <laughs> Good, I'll take you okay. on the road with me. <laughs> yeah, well, great. No, that's awesome. So I think you have a really unique, really unique background, really unique expertise. Um, and I think that that is a, a unique offering. I mean, I recognize through all the investors that, that I talk to exactly what, what you're saying. You know, a lot of folks just don't, they just don't know. They're not familiar with it. They don't understand how to value it. They don't understand how to, how to really do the research. And so I think that's a great value add. Um, I'm also curious to, to, to start to dig in to say, so let's, let's zone in on real estate a little bit, sure. right? Cause this is a real estate show after all. And so what type of, I guess let's start, maybe is it more what you're doing personally? And then that kind of expands and you start to share with others what you're doing personally. Is that kind of how, how the model works? So maybe we should start. Yeah. So, so that's a great question. Um, So I will say um, I got interested in real estate probably in the early 2000s, call it 01 to 04 era. Um, That was probably around when Rich Dad Poor Dad first came out. I think that book came out somewhere in the 2000, 2001, two area. And I was really intrigued by it because I actually, the only people I knew in real estate were like big developers. Um, in, in my town, there were like four families that were known as like mega wealthy who, you know, their names are on tons of buildings. They've developed tons of big malls. So it's like, it was like not realistic. Like it wasn't practical for me to like, oh, let's have a little sit down and talk about this, right? Right. Um, and, and one of my family's friends, he was a a real estate attorney and he had a title company. And so I understood title, but I didn't really understand like much more than that, like 
geography and location made a lot of sense. I took like a, um, a Harvard real estate investing course in college that um, was very eye-opening to me. But again, it was like concepts. It wasn't like, okay, boots on the ground type of thing. Sure. And so like, oh, four, I started um, trying to get into real estate a little bit on my own. And what I found really quickly was that I didn't want to be a landlord and I didn't want to, I am not, you know, full disclosure, I'm not like the handiest guy in the world. And so I'm not looking to fix the lights or, you know, deal with the wiring. Yeah, I can, I can do basic things, but this was not something that took interest to me of like, oh, okay, let's demo a house. Let me flip yeah. this house. And this was like, you know, 2004 or five, like you didn't even really have HGTV telling you like, okay, watch this show, watch that show, watch these things. Um, but it was very what, clear. What a different world, right? Yes. Or, I mean, five years ago, it was a different we're world. We're not flipping right? everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but what the math told me very quickly was the cash flow was going to be, I don't know, two, three hundred dollars of profit a month ish, right? So now I had to go find a tenant and hope that I had a, a good credit quality tenant for, for a year. And then if the roof busted or if the boiler broke, I was probably going to take my entire first year cash flow to replace that. And so I, I'm like, this doesn't really seem like, for me, it wasn't about the value appreciation. I mean, I don't think anybody foresaw, like if in 09, you told people where pricing would be today, they would probably have laughed at you, right? Like after the, the great crash and, and all that. Mm -hmm. So um, I think I think it wasn't about appreciation. It was much more about like, okay, how could this thing throw off cash and not cause me to go into the deficit? And so I kind of got into a property and quickly got out of the property because I'm like, okay, this is, this is not what I want. And so the next thing I started studying was tax liens. And I went to a bunch of auctions and in the state of New Jersey, where I live, um, the way it works is it's an 18%. So if you don't pay your taxes, right, the, the town, the county has um, um, a lien on your property. It actually comes ahead of a mortgage, right? Mm -hmm. And so in New Jersey, it's an 18% penalty. So you pay 18% a year in interest. And after the third year, you can foreclose on the property, meaning if they don't pay that tax bill for three years, then you can start the foreclosure prop, uh, on the property. But the way the auctions work is they're called reverse auctions. So they start at 18%. And if someone wants it, they say, okay, I'll, get, I'll take it for 17. No, I'll take it for 16. And they bid it down. And so I go to this first auction and they're immediately, there's this group of people that they're bidding it to zero. And even some of the properties, they're willing to pay the county one or two percentage points. And I, I'm like, I'm baffled. I don't know what the heck is going on. I'm like, the book that I read did not talk about this. And this was like, there was no YouTube then. There was no any of these things. And I'm like, I, I don't really know what just happened. So I went over to some guy. Turns out he's an attorney. And he's like, listen, the game's a little bit rigged. He goes, all the insurance companies, they send out their guys. And they look at this as a two to three year investment. And if they can pay zero, if they get nothing the first year, but that property pays the 18% the next year. So it's a blended 9% average yield for an insurance company. That's great. And if they can get it in the third year, they'll even get a better return. And then they'll probably sell the house because they don't, they don't want to deal with the foreclosure. So REO, real estate owned, like it, it's like, there's a whole nother market for it. I was like, yeah. hot damn. Okay. So I'm like, forget it. I, this, this is way too much time. This is not passive. This is not, didn't fit the bucket. And I, ironically, I end up at a hedge fund where we end up building a, a portfolio of about 150 to $200 million of just taxing. We have a whole strategy on taxing. So actually I was super familiar with it and like 
you know, worked on some of that at, at the front. But I'm still stuck in the sense of like for myself, I'm like, I want something more passive, right? Mm -hmm. And so I started learning more about, you know, syndications, i.e. people who were buying properties were going to actually operate it. That's their day in and day out job. Sometimes they were also the property manager. Sometimes they outsource that, whatever it may be. But they had operational experience in this. They could identify, they had the deal flow, all this stuff. And they're looking for investors, right? They're looking for checks. Mm -hmm. And yeah, now you're speaking my language. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I start, um, I got into my first deal probably like in 07 and probably if you like, look at, if you look at the timeline, probably not the best time to get in your first deal considering what's hiding around the corner that nobody, you know, per, per se sees coming in the real estate market. Um, and this was a little bit more of a distressed play. Um, so we knew there was going to be some struggle, but obviously the distress got worse because in 2008, like, let's say occupancy went from, let's say 65-ish percent to 45%. And then you start to deal with things, right? Like where you don't have debt service coverage, right? You don't have enough cash flow to pay for the loan on the property. Um, and I had gotten into two other deals that year that both actually weathered the storm reasonably okay because they were, they were slightly different. But this actually started to kind of give me framing around some of the risks involved and how I want to think about my personal portfolio, both from, hey, what do I have exposure from the real estate side? What do I have exposure from in stocks? Where do I have exposure? At the time, crypto wasn't like a thing, so it wasn't there. Um, sure. I was making some small angel investments. So where do I want the risk and what's the risk reward and start to understand like how I feel about some of these things. And so with results advisory, I started, you know, so after, you know, 2010, 2011 or so, I started seeing more real estate deal flow. And I would just start to make my own analysis, whether I had the check or not, right? So some syndicates want very large checks, some want reasonably large checks. Others, even if you're accredited, that doesn't necessarily mean you're sitting on $25,000, $100,000 of liquid cash. You, you may have it tied up in other things. Um, so I started to analyze these things. And so when people came to me and I started helping people with results advisory, it was, it was like a two-prong approach, meaning some people would come to me and they're like, hey, someone is showing me this opportunity. I have no idea if this is good. Like, I, I don't even know what I'm looking for. Right. And then other things were like, I'm seeing a lot of flow, whether I can participate or not, I'm going to analyze it one way or another. If I can write a check, I'm going to do it if I like it. And if I like it, but I can't write a check, I at least will tell you, hey, I'm just not liquid enough today to write a $50,000 check. And so therefore, this is a good opportunity. So it kind of cut both ways where people kind of came to me with up and, and to, this, to, to this day, the way it works is like, I want you to review this for me. It's kind of like having a big brother look over things or an experienced person look over things. And I bring things that I'm looking at and have interest in. And again, if you want to invest with the one you brought to me, again, I'm not incentivized to tell you yes or no, right? Like you're going to invest with them and that's great. Mm -hmm. Or if I bring you something, I'm not incentivized to say, hey, this is the best thing in the world because I'm not the operator, right? Like I want you to do well and you're going to get whatever that split is. You're going to get your preferred return and your split based sure. on however however it's set up with, you know, with sure. that operator. So you're providing kind of an, an unbiased, impartial opinion on whether you think it's a good deal or not, right? Based on Based on your experience through your, your track record in the industry, but also your personal investing experience going back to 04, 07 or so, right? And so, yeah. well, so, so really interesting. So you obviously have a lot of experience um, 
I would, I would call underwriting or just evaluating um, these real estate syndications. You know, sounds like you've done a good amount of multifamily. So as you start to analyze a property, I mean, what are, what are the big things that you're looking for? What, what makes you say, yeah, this is a great deal or, or this is one I'm going to pass on? Yeah. So I think um, obviously if you know the operator, if you've worked with the operator, you obviously have a little, there's a higher level of comfort to begin with, right? Like, mm -hmm. And it's not like, oh yeah, I did a deal with them six months ago, but hey, I've been with them for a number of years. They don't miss uh, distribution payments. They haven't kind of stopped. They haven't had a capital call. And for those listening who don't necessarily know what a capital call is, right? Like it's capital call is that, hey, the project needs more money and they're gonna come to us, the investors, the limited partners who are actually what we call the equity investors, right? Yep. They're gonna to come to us and say, hey, we need more money. Otherwise we have a problem here and we're gonna potentially default on our, our, our loan to the bank, our mortgage. Um, so if you have that comfort, that, that's just a starting point. What I'm looking for um, in general is first, I'm not super focused on the market is this a 10% growth market or a 12% or is it you know I obviously want a good market but I don't need to kind of drill down like a little bit of that is believing in the operator mm -hmm. that they kind of know the market right so when you see someone who's like well we've got a property in Washington state and we have a property in Texas and we have a property in Ohio unless those are all like connected for some reason i.e like a HUD property um, it starts to be like huh what's the deal? Like you, you're not in a market versus like, right. I know Oklahoma, I know it inside out, the Tulsa, Oklahoma city area, bam, 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 bam. I could tell you what's been on the market, what's sold, what the comps are. That gives you a whole level, a whole different level of comfort. And you're not like, not like, Oh, do I really want to be in Florida or Oklahoma? Because I think Oklahoma is not growing as fast. That's less important because that operator now is like shown, this is my dialed in zip code. And I kind of sure. know this market really well. Sure. Um, the other things I'm looking for is when I was in college and we learned, you know, we had like PV, so present value, FV, future value, NPV, net present value. And then there was this thing that like I knew on the test, I knew the formula, but I didn't know what the hell it was. And it was this IRR thing. <laughs> and, and I'm like, I don't, I don't really get what it's for. I don't know why people use it. I don't even know what it's really telling me, but I know how to do it. And like, I'll do well on this test. Fine. Blah, blah, blah. And when I started getting to real estate, I'm like, even before I got into real estate, but like in my job, I'm like, ah, why didn't they put this in straight English? Why didn't they say, <laughs> right. right? Like this is the 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 present value, but it, it affects like the timing of the cash flow, right? Like what is right. your return, but like based on when you're going to get your cash back. Right. Because even if you even if you just Google like definition of an IRR, it's like the the discount rate that will make the you know the the future cash flows equal to zero today, like it's not an easy to understand definition. Definitely. I, I don't I don't even know if you go to Investorpedia or any of these things if they explain it well, right? Like it's super simple for an investor if you kind of kind of break it down in, in what, what's relevant to them. Right. Right. It's the faster you get your money back is going to increase that number, like mm -hmm. straight up. And so when people see a the thing, one of the things that like when I look at it a deal is I want to understand like, what is the underwriting model say in terms of how many years are we looking at? Because as someone as yourself who operates these, you know that whatever you go in with the underwriting assumptions, however it plays out for better or for worse, it will not be that underwriting case. It's just not, right. it's not possible, right? Right. And so 
when I see a case where they're like, okay, this thing is right now not really cash flow positive. So year one, we're not gonna be able to do any distributions. We're gonna put in the money, we're gonna add value here, we're gonna raise the rents, we're gonna do all the things, and then we're gonna stabilize it, which means, right, we're gonna get rent, we're gonna get tenants in, and we're gonna kind of get it to a point where it feels stable, that it's an 85% or better in terms of occupancy. And then you see, so that's year one, year two, and you see that they expect an exit of this thing by year five or at the end of year five. The question I ask is like, how is that going to happen exactly, right? Like, do you feel like that they have enough operational experience to go from basically a 40 to 60% occupancy to Mm -hmm. 85 to 95% inside of five years, do all the things, get all the tenants, like is the market gonna bear that? Like, how is that actually possible? Because if you, and, and then what happens, right? When you see that, the IRR is probably pretty sexy, right? Because you've gone from like a, a weak number to like a pretty strong number in five years. Yeah. What happens if I, if I in Excel, just kind of push that out two years? Does the IRR go from like a 30% to a 20 or a 14? Or like what happens to it? Because IRR is so time-driven, yeah. like I want, I want to understand like what happens. And, yeah. and so like, you know, there's all these different numbers that are floating around. And so when I look at it, I want to understand like, okay, me as an investor, like, how do I feel? Like, what, what do I want out of it, right? So how, how, do we, how, do we, how do we go from current occupancy or current rent roll to projected rent roll? Oh, right. you think it's a 25% lift. In today's market, that's not as challenging as it was two or three years ago. Like in 2019, if you were, if you were buying a deal, and you said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna raise around twenty five percent. People would have been like, uh, I don't know who what, what market you're in. Now everybody's like, yeah, whatever, rents up twenty percent. Right. That's normal, right? right? And, and at the <laughs> yeah, same it's time, it's a strange like, time right now, definitely. Yeah, and and at the same time, you're like, in twenty nineteen, if you bought that property, the value has gone up like fifty percent just on appreciation mm-hmm. or more. Um, so all these things coupled with like back then, and even in twenty twenty, and even twenty twenty one your interest rates were like de minimis, like forget all time lows. It was like literally like super, super low. Whereas now you're up 200, 300 basis points or so from, from the bottom in terms of your, your rate. So like, let's say you were getting a rate at anywhere from like 2.75 to three and a half. You're getting that rate now at like five and a half. It totally changes the economics of a deal and the comfort of, okay, what is what I would, you know, the number I use of a, a debt service coverage ratio. Yeah. And, and it was funny. It's like, I was talking to an operator and they're like, yeah, we generally run like a, a 1.1, a 1.15 debt service coverage ratio. And I was like, really? I'm like, ah, That's yeah. I'm like conversation over because you basically have no downside. Like there's no room for error, right? Like right. you have a lot of downside, but you have no room for that downside. Meaning like if, if all of a sudden people decide, Hey, you know what? You've raised rents 15%. That's market but I found somewhere else to go. How do you backfill that without having a problem with the bank? And so like for investors to understand like, Hey, you want a one and a quarter, one and a half or whatever it is. Like you have to know yourself. And it's the same with like, when people come to me, like, Hey, should I get to crypto or Hey, should I do angel investing? I'm like, okay, how do you feel if your portfolio is down 50%? How do you feel if you open up your stock app or your your fidelity account and you were in tech, heavy tech, and now you're down 35% year to date? Are you okay with that, or are you not? Because it's the same with 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 any other anything, including real estate. Like, how do you feel that they don't have a lot of protection if something should not go according to plan? 
And so these are a lot of the things that like I'll, I'll look at and think about and talk through both for myself and, and for others. Yeah. Well, you know, I like how you brought up the three metrics of cash on cash, IRR and equity multiple and kind of, you know, how, how those relate to each other. And I think those, you know, I think a lot of time people get stuck on the IRR and, and particularly how high is that IRR and mm-hmm. they make decision based off of, well, this deal says 16, but this deal says 18. So I'm going to go with the 18 without looking at time frame, right? What's the hold period? What's the cat? Like how much of that returns coming from cash versus all just assuming appreciation. Um, and then how yeah. much, you know, and, and then what's driving that IRR on, on the back end? Because likely one of the largest levers is what, what's that cap rate when they exit, right? What's that reversion cap rate? And, and how is that, how does that relate to the cap rate going in and, and where the market is and what the market expectations are? And so I think you have to look at all these things together, like you said, to get a complete picture. I also like that you brought up because I, I what I've noticed is the, I won't say savvier, I'll say more seasoned investors spend way more time focusing on and asking questions about things like the DSCR, the debt service coverage ratio, um, your, your leverage, right? So your, your loan to value metric, mm-hmm. and what percentage, things like that. Um, then they do about, you know, the IRR and those things, because I think, um, I think they're more focused on that downside risk, right? If you're, and I think that's how f- folks should approach these investments, really all investments, but, you know, what's the likelihood that you're going to lose your money, right? And I think that should be weighed against, what's the likelihood that you're going to make, you know, an extra two, 3% on an IRR. And then what's the, you know, what's the trade-off there. Right. But I think, I think the focus on downside uh, is so critical, especially right now where we are with, like you said, you know, I mean, we're, we're doing loans. um, You know, we, we buy rate caps on our, our floating rate debt, but you know, I mean, we've had a couple properties under contract for, you know, going on two months now. And I, things have changed dramatically since we originally put them under contract. And so we're, right. uh, you know, we're just continuing to evaluate that and, and pl- plug that in and see how that affects the deals. But it definitely, I mean, luckily we had good cushion in these deals because if you had a thin deal to start out with, I mean, those are, those deals are falling apart, right? Yeah. Now, right. If sure. you were at a, if you were at a 1.15 debt coverage two months ago, you're, you're below one at this point. I mean, there's no way that, that that's going to work out. And so I think that's where people in my mind need to be paying a lot of attention when they're making investments right now is especially to that debt coverage. And what are those cash flow assumptions in the early years? Because interest rates are going to continue to go up. Yeah. And, and I think that's something people have to be critically focused on. I, I agree. And, and I, it's interesting because um it's not just, so to your point, right? Like what is, what's the timeline on the IRR and what are the levers that are getting there, right? Like, mm-hmm. is it, is it the cap rate appreciation, right? Like is, is bulk, is the bulk of the equity multiple coming from that exit? Right. Or on the IRR side, like, is it also coming from a, a planned refinancing? Mm-hmm. And so to, to the point that we were talking about, it's- what, what's, your, how, what's your opinion on underwriting a refinance uh, so just it, out of the gate? So I'm, I'm not opposed to it, depending on the rationale for it, meaning like if, if the property today, so I'll, I'll tell you, there's one that like the refinancing that we got into, um, we got into the property in the end of the summer of 2020. Um, and it was, it's a HUD property, 
Mm-hmm. And so it was underwritten and it, it went, they bought it with a, a con, more conventional loan. Yep. But the plan it takes a long time to correct. get through the process. So the plan was to get a HUD loan, refinance with a HUD loan. So yep. the benefits, like, so HUD takes a really long time to get it, give you a loan. And even though it's a HUD property, it's not a layup. You, you mean, it's not a slam dunk that you're going to get a, a HUD right. loan. Right. The benefits of the HUD loans is the rates are going to be low. They're going to be long, long tail terms, and they will give you higher leverage. So it's double-edged sword because you have higher leverage. So that's good for the refinancing and the cash out. Bad because now you probably have a higher hurdle to, to pay from a cash flow and a debt service coverage. And so depending on all these factors, I'm, I'm okay with it. I think if you get into a property that like it's severely under underserved or under occupied and you think like, hey, it's going to take me two to three years and then I can get a refinancing on this thing. I'm, I'm OK with it out of the gate. I think, though, my assumption is from the way I think about it is if you plan to refinance inside the first like typically like three years is the way I think about it. Yep. And it's not because you went in with like some bad loan, like a bad rate loan because you were doing construction or something like that, but you were standard, like you're getting a loan. If you think you're going to refinance inside of three years, then this hold is seven, 10 years. Like this is at least that kind of hold because there's no way that it, it's all going to kind of go the way you think in right. that, hey, I have this new loan Who's going to buy it on the back end? Like most loans, like, and, and I think this is another point that like a lot of investors don't necessarily know about is like when you get a home mortgage, okay, you can, you can refinance anytime you want. The mm-hmm. cost of refinancing, like the closing cost is the only thing you're focused on, right? And it's like, how quickly can I recoup that cost, right? A lower rate, lower payment, blah, 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 all these things. Yep. On, on these loans though, most of the banks are like, hey, listen, we are taking a big picture approach here. And we need to know we're locking in this rate for our net interest income in on the bank balance sheet, right? Yeah. And so what do they do? And, and again, I don't think most investors kind of really understand this. And that is they kind of slam you with these fees that if you get out of these loans inside of five years, you're going to pay one to five points on getting out of this loan, right? Like an exit type of thing right yeah or or even just like a yield maintenance or like a defeasance like something that could be even more punitive depending on kind of which way which way the markets are going and how long but yeah i mean at a minimum you're going to have these kind of percentage points if you're doing like a a longer term fixed rate product yeah right and and i think also like a lot of these properties don't you generally don't get a 30-year loan like you get on a home like a lot of these products they may have 30-year amortizations Right. But they're more like 10 year loans. Yeah. Five and, to 10. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and again, it depends on the asset, but yeah, yeah. So, so I think that changes the dynamic because like, if you're going to refinance in three years, you're probably going to hold this another five to 10 years on the back end of that. And I'm in theory, okay with it, but you probably didn't underwrite it that way. So now like I have to change my model a little bit yeah. and my view on refinancings have changed in the sense that like, as you get older, the refinancing is not as sexy. Yes, you get to take money off the table tax-free, so to speak. But I now have, in this, in the last two years, if I got a refinance, I have to redeploy this money. Yeah, there's reinvestment risk, right? And I have to find something that is equally or better from a risk and return perspective. Yeah. So a lot of people look at it and they're like, ah, I've de-risked. I've taken money off the table. And yep. it's true, you have. 
but now you have to redeploy that money. And I think until you have a lot of money in this type of asset class and you actually are seeing it, you, the concept is like, yeah, you know, rich people problems. I'll deal with it when I get there, <laughs> right? right? Like it's kind of like taxes, right? But yeah, it, it is a problem. Like you actually have to find that next deal. And it, it's kind of like yeah. when you sell an asset, whether you 1031 or not, it's a nice win to get the money, but unless you needed that money for something, you now have to get it back out there. Right. And I, especially if, you know, right now, as we talk into, you know, inflation's at eight, eight and a half percent or so. I mean, you definitely can't just let it sit there, mm-hmm. right? You got, you got to put it to work somewhere. And no, I, and so I, I, I think that's an interesting, um, it's an interesting point of view. I think it is something that, that you hear more experienced investors again, talk about is, oh, <laughs> oh, really? You're, you're selling it early. Oh, now I gotta, you know, I hope you got something else. Cause now I gotta go deploy this again, you know, type thing, which is, you know, maybe kind of counterintuitive as, as folks get started, but, but it, it does become, an area of focus. The, the reason I asked about the refinance is because I feel like, I mean, I feel like different people have different opinions on it. My, my personal opinion is like, like, I just, I don't like when I see deals that come out that are like, the success is predicated on them refinancing at a certain point. It's like, if I wouldn't invest in that deal, and this is how I look at it is like, if we all, we always underwrite first as just, if we were going to hold it the whole time, mm-hmm. right. With, with, with a single debt source, and like, and, and does the deal work there? Well, well, okay. Because when you, when you underwrite a refinance, like it, it always gets better, right? You're taking chips off, off the table. You're lowering the equity amount. I mean, it should always get better. At least you shouldn't refinance into something that's going to put you in a worse position. But, but I just kind of look at it as, I, I think that's quite risky. If it's like, if the only way that you're happy with this deal is if that refinance occurs right when it says it's supposed to occur, then there's not a lot of room for error. Again, kind of going back to your debt service coverage comment earlier, right? There's just not a lot of room for error. And so I'm just curious. I mean, people look at that in different ways um, because refinance is a very, you know, it's a, it's a great tool to use, right? It's just, I think it's a matter of, would you be happy in the deal if it didn't refinance? Because it may not happen. You know, markets right. may move in the wrong way or you may have a fixed loan and interest rates may be higher. And it doesn't make sense to refinance. Things. Correct. I just think people have to be careful as they're looking at that um, and seeing like the, it, that refinance, like it, it's make or break on that refinance, I think is a, is a risky position to be in. I, I would agree with that. I think if it's under, if the deal looks good only because of that, like if you take it out of the model mm-hmm. and you look at the numbers, how do you feel about it? Yeah. And, and I think it's funny in the self-storage space, um, which is the other kind of cash flow space that I, I, like, I like to invest in. Sure. Um, most are underwritten to five years, but they all go in with the thesis. Like at least the operators I've dealt with is they want to hold this asset forever. Hmm. And maybe they'll refinance in five or 10 years, and maybe they'll sell it if the opportunity is there, but Hmm. they want you to feel comfortable with owning this asset forever. And like, I've looked at a number of industrial, non, non self-storage, but like, you know, third-party warehousing and that kind of stuff. And they all, those guys underwrite for 10, but they all tell you like in a perfect world, we're going to hold this thing forever. Right. And, and they, they're a much longer approach. And I think for investors, I think for even high net worth individuals, um, that is a very hard concept to get your arms around until you've been doing this for a while, Mm -hmm. because in your head, you're always thinking about liquidity, access to my money, 
right. all these things. Not like, oh yeah, if I have a million dollars today, I'm going to generate another million over the next five. So I don't really need this five, this million. I actually need this million to, to grow. I think right. there's like a lot of psychology that actually kind of goes into this. Stuff. I think that's a really interesting point you make because, you know, I, I have a lot of I talk with a lot of investors and people have different, differing points of view. And some people want their, their money back as quickly as possible. And others, I think you're right. Um, I think especially as folks get older, I think they, again, they want it. They want longer holds. They want that. Different. So it's trying to find that balance, I think yeah. with, among your investor base. But um, you know, I, I do feel like I've seen multifamily deals trending to shorter hold periods. Um, I think some of that's probably driven by market condition and some of the so flip scenario, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially as you're getting into like three cap rate deals and things, you have to create a ton of value and you have to exit to really make, yeah. make that work because you're not getting much cash flow. It's a, it's an appreciation play. So some of it's driven by kind of market conditions, but I definitely, because I look at industrial and other things as well, and I, I invest in other deals. And I see that that difference, and so that's interesting that you, you kind of pointed that out on the time frame and perspective. Yeah, I, I think I think a lot of the shorter holds in the last couple of years are driven by market. Like if you if you own something in 17, 18, 19, mm-hmm. you were probably made amazing offers by by mid twenty and on, yeah. even late twenty and on. The the offers that were coming to you were probably off the hook, right? And you're like, yeah. ah, can I turn this down? Can I beat this later? Will I do better? I know yeah. my investors like long hold, but like we're in for 18 months and we could get a 50% return. Like, yeah, sure. The stock market has done that, but that's not this asset class. That's not what it's designed for. Right. And it's also, there's, there's a, a, a balance for the operator to say like, okay, I'm, I'm 20, I'm 30, I'm 40% of the equity, whatever the split may be in the deal yeah. structure. How do I feel about this? And how do my investors feel about it? And how do I kind of strike that balance um, it's challenging. Like there was a deal that we got into last year and they went in and they're like, we're either going to hold this for a really long time, but we may have a buyer inside of like nine months at a 40 to 50% premium to what we pay. And like, honestly, I didn't even tell anybody I worked with that that was an option. Yeah. I told them it's going to be a long hold. And if it happens, they may be disappointed, right? Because they thought this money was going to be tied up for a long time. And if you come to somebody in like 12 months, you're like, well, here's 50% return. Again, they're not going to cry, but they obviously need right. something to do to do with the money. Um, but like to go in with that strategy is is risky because if the deal doesn't make sense, if you don't find that buyer or don't have that interest, then what do you actually own, right? Like, do did you want to own this thing? So it's true. Like finding the balance is um, is important within your investor base. But I also think that like as a firm, you tend to get a track record of like. Yeah, we have situational things that come up, but we tend to be like this. Sure. Versus other firms are like, yeah, we're we're always looking for opportunities to get out. Sure. And and yeah. then it's like probably a different investor base a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So Arya, as we're um, as we're start starting to wind things down, as you're you know, if you could tell people right now, kind of where we are, you know, th- th- a lot a lot of moving pieces, right? What are the things that you're really honed in on as you're looking at deals? Um, what are the what are some of the tips you can give folks of, of things really to look out for? Sure. So, I mean, we touched on a lot of them, but I think um, I, I think I, I want to understand like going in cap rate and the assumed exit cap rate, right? So, what does someone think that the market looks like in five years? Obviously, no one knows, 
but like, what are those assumptions? So one of the things I ask for personally, like I would say like nine to nine and a half out of 10 operators do this for me. And that is like, I asked for a working model. Like, can I have the Excel model? Not because I'm gonna send it out or post it anywhere, but more so I can make changes in the assumptions. So I wanna understand like what happens if they think they're gonna exit, they're going in at a five cap and they think they're gonna exit at a five and a quarter cap. What happens if we exit at a six or six and a half because rates are so high and people just don't pay that, right? So like just conceptually, right? Like as rates go up, cap rates should also kind of go up, meaning like they have an inverse relationship, just kind of like stock prices go down or bond prices go down as, as rates go up. Like all these things move, they have some correlation and it's not a one-to-one, but I want to understand like irrespective of rates, what let's say the actual market changes what happens if I can if I raise a fifty basis points on my cap rate? If I raise even a, a full full point term, um, so that's number one. Number two is I also want to understand like the growth trajectory of your one and two because typically like a lot of times you'll see in the multifamily they'll be like okay it'll take us two to three years to stabilize and then we're going to assume like whatever a three to five percent annual increase. So it's those first couple of years that are really driving those future years of, of your cash flow, right? Yeah. So I want to understand like. Hey, let's say you don't hit those first year numbers. What happens to the cash flow? Understanding that. And then mining the number that we talked about, the, the debt service coverage ratio mm-hmm. of, hey, what does this look like if there's a refinancing? What, what happens? Because that's going to move, right? Like when you refinance, most of the time you take out more debt. And so therefore, like, does, does the coverage go from one and a half to one and a quarter? Does it go from one and a quarter to one? Like what happens yeah. and, and where my risks are? So those are a lot of things I'm, I'm looking at. Um, I do also look at the initial loan in terms of like, what does that rate actually look like in the sense of, is it fixed? Is it floating? And when, when it changes, does the model kind of capture some of that? Like what are people assuming the change looks like in the model? So if I underwrite today at a three, but I have like an 18 month IO, so interest only period, and then it kicks in, but it's fixed, okay. Or if it's floating, did we model what, we, what we're seeing in the actual market? So, so these are right. like a lot of the things like I, right. I look at. No, those are really good. So, so just to recap for folks, so, so cap rates going in and coming out and, and how they relate. I mean, some of the interesting things I've seen in models is like, like one of the models that we'll use is the, the, the reversion cap rate, the exit cap is a function of, of the cap rate going in, right? It, it automatically expands it by, by a certain number of basis points a year. And so things that I've noticed like early on when I was working with it was like, oh, actually, if you add more expenses and lower the cap rate, it actually increases the returns on the deal because it's lowering the going in cap rate, which lowers the exit cap rate. And so I think things that you have to be careful of, right, when you, when you look at deals, um, Growth assumptions, it's all about the assumptions, right? And because those growth assumptions are compounding, like they really, the first couple of years, like you said, really have an impact on, on the rest. And so just hone in on, always hone in on the assumptions. The DSCR, like we understand, like that's your, your primary risk metric, like to understand the level of risk. Because really the only way, at least in my experience, that these deals really die is when people can't pay their mortgage. I mean, that's really the only way that you're going to lose the property. I mean, you can cut expenses, you can cut payroll, you can do anything. As long as you can live the fight another day by paying that mortgage payment, over the long term, real estate's going to appreciate and the market will come back, right? But it's like, so that DSCR is critical. 
and then, yeah, loan terms are really what's driving a lot of that in the DSCR and understanding. I think what you mentioned, which is incredibly important right now, which, which how variable rates are moving is if it is a variable rate loan, are they factoring in the movement that's going to happen over the next few years as they're projecting cash flows out, right? Make sure they're not right. projecting what it is today in year two, because loans are rates right now are going to be a heck of a lot higher, right? So yeah, exactly. awesome points, Arya. Thank you for, for making those. Before I let you go, I'm going to take you through our keys to success round. I got four questions I want to ask you. Okay. The first one is, and I think you'll be well suited for this one. The first one is if you were going to invest your money with somebody else in, in somebody else's syndicate and you could only ask them one question, what would that one question be? So I would go with what I like to say is I don't know what I don't know. And so my question would be, what is the question I haven't asked or what is the question I didn't even think to ask you yet? Interesting. You kind of put it back, put it back on them to exactly to, to see, see where they go and how transparent they are. Maybe. Yeah. All right. I like that. I like that. What are you most proud of in your career? Um, so I think I, I I'm going to kind of take a pivot from the question on the career side, because um, I think there are a lot of things I did well, a lot of things I did wrong. If I could go back, would I change things? Yeah, there's no question. Obviously, I learned from the things I did wrong, but I, I look at it and I say, I think the career, the thing I'm most proud of is how I was able to, let's call it balance. I have four kids, a wife, four kids, like balance my family and what we together have created in that. Like I'm super proud of my kids and like I'm proud that I was able to have time to coach most of them in almost all their sports and be there for them. So I think, I think if I were to like be honest about like yeah. the career is nice and good, but like I'm probably more proud of that side of the house. That's awesome. I appreciate that. I've got three kids myself. And so I totally understand where you're coming from. What's a book that everybody should read? Okay. So um, I, I think like I read a lot, so I have to preface uh, that. Um, and there are a lot of books I like. And so I'm kind of, I'm trying to think about like, okay, we have real estate investors. And so I'm not going to give like an investing book and I'm not going to give a real estate book. I think the book that um, is super impactful to everybody and really can have like a tremendous impact is Atomic Habits. Uh, James Clear, Yep. He's the, the book is, yes, he references his website a lot, but that's because he has like a lot of data and work, you know, workflow there. And he's not trying to sell you something per se. Um, but I think, um, I think having understanding of your habits and understanding how you can change and fix things in general is, is a, just a, a super powerful thing in your life, whether it's investing or your business or whatever it may be. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've read it. It's a great book. And uh, yeah, so I highly recommend it as well. And then lastly, what is your number one key to success? Yeah, so I, I think uh, the number one key to success um, is it's, it's a, a little bit of a combination like formula. And that is, I think the first thing that goes into the formula is actually having an idea of the destination. Like, what is it you're trying to accomplish? Like, not necessarily your why, but like where you want to go. Why you want to get there is always a great added piece to the formula. Mm -hmm. And then the, the, the front end, the key to that success becomes the combination of consistency and well, lack of a better word, like persistence, you know, being consistently persistent or persistent 
with your consistency because consistency will will trump a lot of other things right like think mm -hmm. about it like at a very mathematical science perspective if you compound things all it is is consistency and the returns if you compound your returns you're going to outperform like if you could put up a seven or eight percent return every year versus someone who's got swings all over the place you're probably going to be better that's why like even in the stock market dollar cost averaging being consistent mm -hmm. so I, I think that applies in, in the success formula the consistency is probably the most important ingredient yeah absolutely and and i think that's a really common answer is just stay consistent stay at it don't give up so i, I think that is an excellent key to success well, Arya, before we let you go today, uh, if folks want to learn about more about what you're doing, they want to learn more about results advisory, how can folks get a hold of you? Sure. Um, you can head over to uh, Solution Advisory um, is, is one place. The other place, like I'm pretty active. I say that like from an active uh, standpoint on Instagram. So Arya, the businessman. I just started getting into to Twitter a little bit in the last like six to eight months or so, but um, the other, the only other website is really uh, futurefundme.com. So solution advisory or futurefundme.com. You get a podcast too, right? I do have a podcast. That is true. Inside the you, Lion's Den. That, that is you a very can plug it. Inside the Lion's Den. <laughs> Inside the Lion's Den podcast. Yes. Perfect. All right. All right. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for sharing your perspective. Appreciate you digging into some of the nitty gritty metrics with us and hope you have a great rest of the day. Thanks, you too. Thanks for listening to another great Thanks episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Go out and invest like a pro.